Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. James Coyne. Some of you might already know him through his blog, Mind the Brain on Plus. Has anyone read that? Some people have done required reading, preparatory reading. Uh, so perhaps through his online presence on Twitter, or others of you might know him through his prolific academic output. Uh, so Jim was raised in the Chelsea area of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, which I'm told is a pretty rough part of town. Uh, it was featured in the Clint Eastwood movie Mystic River. Uh, Jim's father was once described in the book as a small-time hoodlum dealing on the fringe of the mob, which Jim will tell you is not strictly accurate, but close enough. Uh, so despite this unusual start to life, despite being dyslexic, Jim did well enough at school to secure a full scholarship to Carnegie Tech, later to become Carnegie Mellon University. During his summers, uh, he went home and worked on the docks taking ice out to the sailing boats to make ends meet. Uh, finding that he was not very well suited to engineering, Jim switched to psychology quite early on in his degree. He went on to his PhD at Indiana University, during this time, Jim was dodging the draft for Vietnam, and he was actually at Woodstock in 1969, I discovered, so you can ask him for the details, the ones that he remembers. Um, he served on the faculty of Miami University and then UC Berkeley, after which he spent many years at Michigan University. More recently, he was at the University of Pennsylvania, and is now partly based at, in the Netherlands, I know I'm going to mispronounce this, at the University of Groningen, teaching academic writing. Uh, Jim's published over 350 academic papers. He's an aging next to 81. In addition to this, he blogs for PLOS, for science-based medicine and, and various other places, and he's a prolific user of social media. Some of you might have been to one of his workshops yesterday uh, on how to use social media to promote your research and develop collaborations. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, a coin of the realm, and I guarantee that you'll see lots of interesting and sometimes some provocative stuff. So I hope you enjoy today's talk, and with its somewhat challenging title, Are Most Positive Findings in Psychology False or Exaggerated? Well, are they? Over to you, Jim. Thank you very much. Thanks, Deb, for organizing this talk on such a short notice and for all of you to, uh, for coming out. And um, I'm going to be asking the question today, can we believe what we find in the psychological literature? Can we believe the media reports of what's in the psychological literature? And I'm going to raise some serious doubts about that. I'm going to start, I'll also be describing some of the efforts of myself and my colleagues to out some of the bad sciences there. And then at one point when we recognize the problem is not just the bad science, but the uh, flaws in the process of peer review and editorial review that uh, gives us what we find in the literature, but importantly often what we don't find in the literature, uh, what's weeded out. And I'll describe some of the uh, bits of activism that I've uh, been involved in and in, uh, some of the ongoing things. Uh, it's, it's a pretty wild fight. Um, <clears throat> sometimes with a lot of in, intense emotion on all sides. And uh, hopefully I'll finish the time to have a bit of a discussion uh, about these things. I'll make a number of references to my blog posts and um, later on, uh, maybe next week, I'll, the slides will certainly become available right away on SlideShare, but I'll also make available uh, a um, list of blogs that are referred to in the slides. So it was about almost a decade ago 
John Unitas documented that many positive findings in biomedical literature, they don't replicate and many uh, what's considered uh, discoveries at the time, they typically turn out to be exaggerated or simply false. He suggested it wasn't so much a matter of fraud, but the <coughs> rules of the game in terms of confirmatory bias, flexible rules of design and analysis and reporting, what he called significance chasing, the obsession of investigators and reviewers with uh, findings uh, that are significant. Um, some of his key articles, this 2005 article is the probably most downloaded paper in the history of, of PLOSE. Um, the JAMA paper is also very highly cited in this interesting follow-up that he, he did, Why Current Publication Practice May Distort Science. Um, ben Goldacre, a few years after that, he was a psychiatrist in the UK who was known for a book called Bad Science. He came out with a book called Bad Pharma. And he described how drug companies mislead doctors and they harm patients by their um, control of the publication process. And um, that the, the poorly designed studies, and they're often, um, um, he, he documented that um, when a drug company is involved in testing of a drug that they produce, the effect sizes are uh, typically 60 to 80% higher than when the drug companies aren't involved. And this led to a lot of reform. He pointed out that a lot of the bad studies were left unpublished. And so he launched something called All Trials, in which all the data was supposed to be, uh, first were, the studies were supposed to be registered so we knew they were coming, and then the findings were supposed to be available. Um, and uh, that's got a lot of momentum. Uh, the pre-registration of clinical trials is increasingly accepted. The reporting standards, so that um, the requirements, the journals have adopted a set of requirements called consort, on um, that researchers have to give sufficient details about what went on in trials, what was the uh, uh, plans for analysis, what were the designated primary outcomes, so that readers can decide for themselves whether they can accept the conclusions. Um, there's also reporting standards that have been developed for meta-analyses. These are analyses of analyses. They're basically taking the available literature, um, synthesizing it, and trying to come to a conclusion about the best evidence as to whether treatments work or not. And then, um, more recently, there's been requirements that investigators make data available for independent analysis. Uh, Close took the lead the other day. Um, uh, with some uh, more stringent requirements that when you publish in PLOS that you uh, make your data available so other people can analyze it. And I think that in a lot of places people recognize that the availability of all this data allows them to do research and make important contributions even when they don't have the resources to conduct the actual studies. Um, my colleagues and I made a modest contribution to this. In JAMA, um, and if we have time and question and answer period, I can talk a little bit about how this paper came about. It's pretty interesting. We demonstrated that um, when meta-analyses are done to decide whether the balance of evidence is that particular medical interventions are effective or not, the meta-analyses typically don't take into account whether pharmaceutical companies 
actually conducted the studies. And we know that's an important source of bias, but the rules for doing meta-analyses did not require acknowledgement of that. And um, so we assembled a team on the, on the internet. Uh, Eric Turner, one of the authors, uh, was a former FDA official that had outed some of the hidden trials. Um, he got bounced out of there, and, um, and so they when became inpatient psychiatrists. We recruited him. But one of the women in our group, Linda Barrow, who I've never met, uh, uh, most of these people I hadn't met before when I took the study, she was associated with the Cochrane Collaboration. It's a group of volunteers who review the medical literature uh, systematically by very strict rules and try to determine which practices are effective or ineffective. And she had suggested that Cochrane Collaboration did a better job than the, 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 the uh, meta-analyses done by other people. We were criticized on the internet because she worked, even if as a volunteer, for Cochrane Collaboration. So we undertook a second paper in which we compared Cochrane um, Collaboration to other meta-analyses. We found they weren't as good as they uh, thought. That was done in BMJ. The Cochrane Collaboration immediately reacted. We thought they would get the usual hostility but instead they met and they decided that we were right. And they have a special award they give every couple of years. It's the Bill Silverman Award. And it's an award for someone who writes a paper that challenges them enough to change the way they do things. Uh, Bill Silverman was uh, an OB who was very concerned about the evidence base for a lot of the practices that were be, being done to pregnant women and, 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 and uh, especially during delivery. And he was considered a troublemaker, has an email from Cochrane uh, uh, Collaboration announcing the award. He was, he was a genuine pain in the ass. And so that anybody who irritated uh, Cochrane to do something different uh, would be rewarded. And, and most years they didn't find anybody who did that. And so the first off, the graduate student got $1,000 uh, for our efforts. Um, so Cochrane suggests that when you're looking at a randomized trial, and you try to decide whether it's trustworthy, you should look for certain uh, features that um, characterize risk of bias. Did the investigators know which group uh, patients were being assigned to sequence um, generation? Did they know how it was being done so they could control? So some studies hold back patients, and they thought, oh, this patient should get in the control group, but we, we're gonna, um, actually, we need someone for the intervention group right now. We don't want them in that. We'll get another patient. So by looking at the sequence generation and how patients are being allocated. Furthermore, some trials, the participants and the investigators and the outcome assessors know what group people are being assigned to, and it may affect their evaluations. There's certainly evidence that, that it does. Finally, um, <coughs> This um, question of whether the investigators report all the patients that were randomized. There's a famous study by Fawzi Fawzi of whether um, uh, uh, problem-solving therapy works with melanoma patients to um, affect survival. He didn't get results, but he decided that some of the patients in the intervention group were too depressed to benefit from it, so he dropped them. And he stopped the follow-up of the people um, in the control group because it looked like they were doing, they were, there was a trend to do better, and he got a very famous paper in which he suggested that this intervention could improve the survival of 
melanoma patients. It got a lot of attention. When the Danes tried to replicate it, they actually hired uh, Nancy Fawzi, his wife, as a consultant on the project. They found absolutely no effect, but it's been buried in the literature. People don't cite it because it's less exciting than the original study. And there's a pattern of that going on. Finally, there are studies in which you, they, a number of outcome variables uh, are available, and they, the investigators pick the one that uh, makes it look the study look best. I, I gave a presentation to uh, uh, the Victorian Psychoncology um, Society um, last week, and I found a study of whether um, uh, <clears throat> a meaning-based therapy for dying patients administered by psychiatrists whether it um, improved their quality of their life at the end of their life, it had 23 different measures of distress. None of them worked out. That's kind of statistically improbable. By chance, you'd expect at least one, by particularly when they had hundreds of patients. But they concluded, nonetheless, it was, uh, it was quite satisfying for the patients and deserved further exploration. And so, basically, um, they play a game by, they after the they see their data, they, they make a hypothesis about particular um, uh, variables working out, and they make sure they have a array to choose from. And um, so, but the other threats to validity, that's real vague in Cochrane, and what they've decided is now it'll be, did the investigator, uh, did, it have, did the investigator have any, tri uh, any ties to uh, people with conflicts of interest? Um, and so basically what we were arguing in our paper, there's a lot of laundering of studies going on because the studies are known to be dirty because they're done by pharmaceutical companies, but the meta-analyses clean it up and they don't indicate that the effect size is where they came and take that into account. Um, in psychotherapy, we have a similar situation. Um, I was embarrassed. I, a couple of years ago, I was giving a talk in Sydney and they asked me, as part of coming to the uh, behavior therapy conference, I'd do a workshop on problem-solving therapy. I was reviewing the literature at the same time, and I found that uh, problem-solving therapy, whereas most therapies have an effect size of about 0.35, or 0.5 if uh, they're compared to no treatment, that problem-solving therapy had an effect size of 4.0. And so if you tried to put it into a meta-analysis, it just, uh, it, 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 all kinds of warnings were set off of the statistics. In fact, one group had done a meta-analysis of problem-solving therapy for chronic illness, and they suggested the strongest predictor of outcome is whether Art Nezu or his wife Chris Nezu was involved as a consultant. And uh, so I ran into Chris and Art uh, in, in Denmark, and I said, you know, it's a little embarrassing uh, what's, what's people finding out about your, your treatment. They, they can't even put it in a meta-analysis. He said, that's just because when you really believe in the treatment and you convey that to your therapist, the, 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 the hope is contagious. I think something else is going on. Um, there's a trickle-down reform. Because um, the governments regulate, um, they make decisions based on drug trials, they, they're more in a position to enforce strict rules. And... Um, Especially as larger data sets become available, um, it's possible to, to uh, look at inconsistencies and consistencies and patterns. It's somewhat different in psychology. Um, certainly, 
Um, as more data become available, and as a group in the Netherlands would work with Tim Kuiper, they've assembled all of the trials that have ever been done for treatments for depression, psychological treatments. Anyone can access that data, and they help you um, uh, analyze it. And it's found that um, factors like whether there is an active or a passive control group, that is, whether the, the, the comparator, the treatment to which the innovation is being compared, is it a wait list, which is no, um, which is a neutral effect, or a um, supportive therapy, which is a, um, it's, it's, it has some active ingredients of um, interaction, support, positive expectations. It makes a big difference. Furthermore, the, one of the best predictors of a psychotherapy outcome trial is what the allegiance of the investigator, which dog he has in the fight. And that predicts better than the uh, intervention being examined. So clinical psychology has been slower, and behavioral medicine has even been slower than that. Um, psychology is facing a crisis of credibility. And there's been lots of um, questions raised about just how reliable. Uh, Manufo is a neuroscientist, and a, he studies um, genetics of of uh, smoking and psychopathology, and he has raised serious doubts about the number of findings in that literature. Um, they're more than you'd expect, given the power of the studies, and they're statistically improbable. Um, this is a paper that just came out the other day, and they looked at the correlation between effect size and the number of uh, subjects in a psychological experiment. They did it with a random sample of a thousand studies. And what they found is there's a pretty, it's a moderate correlation between effect size and sample size. That is, the larger effects come from the smallest trials, the ones where getting a significant effect are statistically improbable. In a psychotherapy trial, if a study does not have 35 patients per, um, in a smaller cell, the smallest comparison group, it's statistically improbable to detect an effect even if it's there. But they typically do the studies with small samples and almost always they're positive. To compare two active treatments of any kind and get a statistical difference, you need at least a couple hundred patients. Very few clinical trials ever have a couple hundred. But routinely, ACT studies beat CBT studies when they're done by people who promote ACT in workshops, ACT being acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, so um, the, the other thing it was, they found that was very interesting, there was a whole clumping up of studies that in the range of uh, 0 .0, uh, significance of 0 .049, of, of, from 0 .041 to 0 .049, is this at a statistically improbable rate, people just slipped um, into these, quote, significant range, the good range, and they often did that by shifting variables, dropping patients, and doing that sort of thing. So that's further uh, evidence just came out, I slipped it in the, my slides this morning, of a crisis of credibility. Outright uh, fraud is unusual. Uh, how many people know about uh, Derek Staple? Yeah, okay, just real briefly. He was at my university for a while before we went on a tilt And I can tell you a story where um, this uh, young woman faculty member came by really excited that she'd just become a vegetarian. 
and she felt it made her whole family more mellow. The kids didn't fight. And uh, so he said, well, I've got a study I'm going to do a couple days from now. I'm going to go into a, um, a classroom, a high school classroom. I'm going to test the students. And why don't we test the idea that we will give them uh, exposure to a stimulus of raw meat or um, something like that, or vegetables, and we'll see how the attitudes they have to immigrants. And he, you can help me uh, uh, retype the forms and load up the car with candy, because I'll just give them some candy. And he went off, and a couple days later, he handled a flash tip, and he said, it's amazing that every one of our predictions consistent what you've been telling me worked out, and here's the data. And he, she said, can I see the data? No, you're an assistant professor. You're going to get papers written out and get tenure. Um, but I assure you, it's okay. Well, he, they later found out that he never went to the school. He kept the candy and ate it and gave it to his family. And uh, the study was never done. And he did that 24 times. Um, that is unusual. But when it does happen, it's really hard to get studies out of the literature. And here's one I've been battling with for a while. Hans Isaac, people uh, may know him as a personality psychologist, and um, he, uh, what was not um, known until much later in his life is that he was on the payroll not of the American tobacco companies, but of the lawyers for the American tobacco companies. And they were fascinated by a claim that he had made. He suggested that neurotic people smoke a lot, um, and shy people smoke a lot, and neurotic and shy people, um, they get lung cancer, but not because they smoke. Um, smoking is spurious. It's because they're shy and neurotic. And um, so he did a number of studies. In fact, he claims that he had developed in Croatia, of all places, an intervention that could protect people from being shy and neurotic. So when you look at his effect sizes, um, this is a uh, this is from 10 pages of data, and the average relationship between a personality variable, the hazards ratio, and death um, from cancer is about 1.08. So that's not very interesting as well within the range of a confound. But he finds 68.2, 28.1. I try to find another variable in the literature that predicted cancer with that kind of accuracy. The only thing came close is HPV infection in women and later cervical cancer. And that's a real known biological mechanism. So this is obviously garbage, and everybody knows it, but it's such an intriguing idea that the mind can affect the body in this way. And so I've gone around, I get alerts whenever his data gets cited, and I write to the journals and complain that this is garbage. I've never got a retraction. Uh, the Nature Review's Clinical Oncology, it's a very high-impact journal. And Andrew Steptoe is a very distinguished English psychologist. He says, I, I was, after the fact, suggesting he should rule out fraudulent data. And that wasn't, a, uh, that wasn't part of his design, so it would have been inappropriate for him to remove it. Whatever. Um, <coughs> but um, So what's happened is, is very often... This particular study, the, nat the, um, the Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, it's been cited a hundred times or more. And most people who cite it don't realize that it entirely depends on the, the fraudulent data. 
to get up in the range of being interesting. Um, but confirmatory bias is really entrenched in our field. As an undergraduate at Carnegie, one of my professors was Daryl Bem. And Daryl Bem, in his textbooks, preached if you're, um, it's a conflict between your hypothesis and the data, change your hypothesis to fit the data. And that's standard advice in social psychologists. Um, and um, so if there's a conflict, they're really the same. Really, does your hypothesis fit the data? And you have to have to choose the data are right. Change your hypothesis. And you don't need to tell anybody. <clears throat> so the suggestion is that rather than fraud, it's um, the rules by which we um, design studies, though introduce uh, different variables, um, and then pick the ones that after seeing the results, called harking, hypothesizing after results are known. <coughs> These are accepted practices. And the idea of being obsessed with significance, um, it, it really drives um, an endemic confirmatory bias. Um, here's a paper uh, two of my colleagues back at um, uh, at Bur uh, excuse me at um, at Pennsylvania, um, Joe Simmons and Uri Simonson, and these guys are kind of like nerdy guys. I've gone to lunch with them a couple times, and they they obsessed with reading tables in in uh, articles, and they detect high risk papers, and then they sometimes write authors saying it's very curious the findings I found in your paper, and I'm wondering if I could reanalyze your data. They did that to somebody, not Staple, but another um, Dutch social psychologist, and the Dutch social psychologist decided to leave academia and didn't respond. Um, the scary guys. Um, then there was a paper that targeted psychological science. And these authors, uh, Ferguson and Brannick, they felt because they were being so critical of the American, excuse me, Association of Psychological Science, APS journal. They should publish their critique there. It was rejected by the journal um, because it was considered biased and witch hunt. And what they showed is that, um, that there, at a, see if I the results here. No. At a statistically improbable rate, um, um, certain positive findings occurred in that journal and that there was clear evidence and bias. The abstracts didn't fit within the results, and, um, and it was just generally an unreliable journal. I've sort of had a battle going on with APS journals. Uh, they're, um, as much as I like them better than APA, their journals are terrible. They're the only um, journals that have not adopted consort. So um, if you report a clinical trial in an APS journal, you don't even have to identify it as a clinical trial. I was uh, critiquing a study of loving-kindness meditation that Barbara Fredrickson did. It took six reads to figure out that it really was a randomized trial. Not only did it have no results, but 26 of the people practicing loving-kindness meditation got worse. And so again, the, the criticism was that I was on a witch hunt, and they, they weren't interested in publishing that. They, um, the, there's a committee on publication ethics that everybody subscribes to it. It's a non—it's a nonprofit voluntary association, but all the journal, the uh, publishers and professional organizations agree that it's appropriate. It's like the UN, and um, that requires that you have a procedure for a 
accepting appeals when you reject the paper. And so I pointed out to the journal that you that they violated code. And they said, well, we violated code. We don't have any way of dealing with this. Um, but the other thing, as numerous people have documented, is a strong confirmatory bias, newsworthy triumphs over science in this journal. And there's a real aversion to null findings and replications. And they don't adhere, adhere to the pottery bond rule. Do people have pottery bonds in Australia? It's a store that sells pottery and, and uh, glassware. And it, it's, it's, there is no rule in the store, but somehow everybody in America believes there is a rule. If you break it, you, you pay for it. And the idea of the pottery uh, bond rule is you publish bad science, you fix it. And it's not, it doesn't get done. I was in a long struggle with Ike, the, um, the new editor of Psychological Science, who brought in to reform the journal, and he was refusing to publish our critique of Barbara Fredrickson's work. And so here's an email that I shot off to the CEO, Alan Kraut, of, um, of APS. I respect the autonomy of APS publications from the C CEO, but I think the new editor of Psychological Science is only going to compound his losses if it continues to fight, giving us an appeal consistent with the standards of COPE. I think that COPE and the larger scientific community will solidly be on our side and will generate considerable outrage. Hopefully you'll uh, not consider it appropriate to warn him. And uh, Alan wrote back to me, he said, I'm CEO, I don't interfere with my journals, but within the hour, um, I uh, caved, and we're, we're gonna be publishing a paper there that's just devastating critique. Um, that none of the reviewers noticed there was a clinical trial, none of them noticed there was a clinical trial in which the patient deteriorated, and the paper claims loving-kindness meditation improves um, health by positively affecting vagal tone. Vagal tone wasn't measured, um, only respiration was measured, and it was with a very inconsistent set of measures, and there's basically nothing there. And this falls on Barbara Fredrickson's work having been exposed to the positivity ratio, that which she claimed that having 2.9004 um, positive things for every negative thing in your life makes you happier. Um, and, but if you get more than 11 things in your life um, ratio, then it no longer uh, gives you any benefit. And she says that um, hydraulics and thermodynamics prove this. And a, a, a physicist and a, a psychology student wrote a paper saying this is utter rubbish. Um, so that's strike one. Strike two is last Monday that psychology, that psychology student Nick Brown and I published a study in which we reanalyzed data in which she had suggested that having pursuing meaning in your life versus pure pleasure, it affects your genomic expression and you have a better immune system. And if you pursue pleasure instead, then it's like you're facing chronic stress. And we, re we, we did 8,000 regression equations, and uh, um, we couldn't replicate our effects. We found if you put random numbers in, it didn't work well. <laughs> so uh, stay tuned for retraction. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that's developing is concern with replications. And the idea is that, um, particularly some social psychologists, have the idea that we should value replications. Ionisa says about um, 
Yonisa uh, says about the biomedical literature, um, we shouldn't accept studies unless they're replicated. And uh, psychologists aren't ready to go that far. But APS is allowing people you know, in a special different journal to publish replications and to register that they're trying to do so. And unfortunately, I'm lining up against the social psychologists on this. I meet Chris Chavlis when I get back on Monday in Philadelphia because we're you know about ready to, to battle on this. Because my concern is that by having a special inferior place that when you publish replications <coughs> and findings, it ghettoizes them and it preserves the the bullshit that comes out in in uh, psychological science and that it protects the bias of prestige journals towards false positive findings, it discriminates against outcomes. So it just sets up a ghetto, and I'm prepared to battle that. And basically, if you're dealing with APS, you're sleeping with the enemy. Um, SPIN is well known in um, scientific journals, and um, usually um, positive, the findings that are reported in the results section are not as positive as what's recorded in the abstracts. And I've written a couple papers about the need to have abstract reform. CONSORT, the group that develops reporting standards for clinical trials, has reporting standards for abstracts, but almost no journals pay attention to that. Skip through these, we're a little bit behind. Um, okay, why is there confirmatory bias? Nobel Prize winner uh, Peter Medawar suggested just human nature. It's a common failing and one I have myself suffered from to fall in love with a hypothesis and be unwilling to take no for an answer. A love affair with a pet hypothesis can waste years of precious time. There's often no final decisive yes, but could often there can be um, a decisive no. And then there's a whole structure. Um, investigators want positive findings. Journals want them, um, there's um, media want them, and people who cite the paper subsequently want them. Um, professional organizations need positive findings to support guidelines and recommendations. Um, the finding of Ising that was fraudulent uh, is very valuable to professional organizations who want to cite that um, the mind can influence the body. So they're predisposed to accept findings like that and ignore findings that don't. Gurus and advocates like Barbara Fredrickson need that particular treatments um, be perceived as positive. She gets $4,000 to $10,000 an hour to talk about um, loving kindness um, meditation. And you can buy an uh, MP3 of a workshop of her for $580, which otherwise would cost you $670 if you go there in person. Authors need positive findings to get published and advance their careers. This pressure is from the journals. People, as I talked about in the workshop, people need to understand the game that's going on in the journals. There's intense competition for journal impact factor, JIS. It gets more subscriptions, attracts better papers, um, and it adds prestige. The way in which the JIF is calculated it's the average number of time a paper is cited two years after it appears in the journal. And journals recognize if, there's, if a paper is hyped 
in the news, it's more likely that it'll be immediately cited. Now, paper journals like Psychological Science, um, at ISI counts the number of times it's been cited in the two years. The two-year period begins when the action can hold the journal. But what Psychological Science does, like a lot of journals, they have early release, and so they accumulate citations um, for uh, months before. In fact, authors um, who publish in Psychological Science, they're allowed to um, discuss with the media their findings before others can independently look at them. And so often there's a buzz created before the paper's even available. That's simply not allowed with other journals. Um, journal impact factor. The idea of developing journal impact factors is people wanted to evaluate, say, junior faculty for postdocs and uh, faculty positions based on the impact of their work. But the problem is junior people are just publishing the work, so you don't know how, how much impact it's going to have. And a librarian with OCD um, named um, Eugene Garfield in, um, in Philadelphia, he developed a system by which he would track incoming um, citations and then calculate an impact factor. And he, he, he became certainly a multimillionaire, perhaps even more money than that. Uh, he developed ISI, which eventually became uh, Thomson, Web of Science, and Reuters. And what he uh, while he, when he first made his money, he would sell his, the data to deans and to universities and to university systems about the likelihood that a paper was going to be cited based on the journal which it appeared. So it was characterizing journals and then said, if you're in this journal, this is the likelihood of how much uh, interest is going to achieve. The correlation between journal impact factor and the number of times papers are actually cited is at its lowest level since um, the 70s when it was developed. However, this increasing correlation between the impact factor of a journal and the likelihood that a paper will be retracted as bad science. The higher the impact, the um, more the retraction rate. Um, the hot area is particularly confirmed by, uh, plagued by confirmatory bias. The findings that people want to believe because they're consistent with the preconceived notions mind-body relations, psychoimmunology, PNI, the idea that um, psychological processes affect the immune system, which in turn can uh, affect disease and death, gene-environment interactions, GWAS studies, and genomics are areas of, of high um, uh, confirmatory bias, neuroscience, screening for depression and distress, and claims that psychotherapy is evidence-based, or that one therapy is better than another therapy. The likelihood that any therapy that has got a rationale, a structure that so people follow it, and has support and positive expectations, the likelihood that it'll be uh, proved superior to another uh, therapy is quite statistically improbable, given at least certainly the depression literature. But there's lots of money being made and lots of papers being written. Um, approaching a hot area, we need to ask, are the results interesting because they advance the field, or are they interesting only because of some vague relevance to a claim that everybody wants to hold on to? Um, so I, my colleagues and I were spending a lot of time documenting these things and making a lot of enemies, and we decided that we had to turn our attention not just to the papers that we were seeing in the journals and the flaws we were finding, but to the processes that were generating these basic flaws built into pre-publication review 
editorial policies. And we decided that what we needed to do is get the focus off pre-publication peer review. It's basically three people and an editor, or sometimes two people and an editor, or somebody, nobody but the editor, deciding that a particular paper is uh, worthy of publishing, and otherwise it, it potentially disappears. And um, that we wanted to force um, acceptance of the standards that were already being developed elsewhere for uh, doing meta-analyses, um, transparency, um, in, in terms of reporting, everything that was done in a study, including its flaws, and making the data available. Um, and we're particularly concerned outing of conflicts of interest when investigators have an investment in getting a particular outcome. And I've had a particular battle. I've, I had to check lawyers what was uh, I could say in Australia without, because I know the, the British laws are quite uh, uh, stringent, that it's not a matter of saying something that's untrue, it's saying something that's damaging. So I found it's okay to say that the many reasons, uh, the, the, the large amount of evidence I have that uh, uh, triple P parenting is not effective, but the, um, uh, the, it's, uh, the people, Saunders and his group, very much control the publication and the, um, uh, the review process. So uh, we've had some targeted takedowns. We identified bad signs. We assembled a group on the internet, and we, we tried to out it. And we call for retractions in a rattle. Um, my pet peeves are hype and hokum, calculating attract attention, workshops, media attention, even when the findings are premature and exaggerated. Ideas that are practices which are particularly harmful to consumers or costly society, Triple P is a big target of mine because of that. It's ineffective, but it's mandated with million dollar programs in, in, in many parts of the world. And people having difficulty with their kids, it's mandated they receive this treatment. Um, undisclosed conflicts of interest and repeat offenders, people who do the same thing over and over again in the literature. Um, in terms of publication process, a lot of articles that appear in peer-reviewed journals are not peer-reviewed. Um, if they're a committee report, uh, there's a notorious group in Canada that promotes uh, screening of cancer patients for psychological distress. And uh, there was an instance recently where one of this group, Linda Carlson, reviewed a paper that uh, indicated that screening cancer patients for distress consumed resources that should have been going to making the services available. And uh, she recommended rejection. And when the paper, when the journal didn't agree, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, she was uh, asked. To, she asked to write a commentary on the paper. She trashed the paper and cited ten of her own studies. They weren't really studies; they were opinion pieces. So she got ten citations and a trashing of the of this paper, and uh, to promote screening. Um, editors and reviewers abuse power of the, uh, the power of the review process, suppress alternative points of view. Gurus undermine consumer sense of self-efficacy. You need to go to these workshops in order to keep yourself healthy. Um, you need positive psychology to be happy. You need to take your advice from gurus. It's undermining sense, people's sense of agency and self-efficacy. And then finally, gurus who sell products based on claims of being scientists. You know, you see these things like Todd Cashden has a Psychologist Today column in which he says the five things that you have to do based on science to, uh, to be creative. And you find out that he's citing papers in low-impact journals, 
He tells you nothing about the confidence interval against the effect sizes. He tells you nothing about the highly restricted uh, nature of the sample, but instead tells you this is a finding you should apply, otherwise you'll be uncreative. Okay, official science. I, I go to battle a lot with organizations like um, uh, Society for Behavioral Medicine um, or the American Heart Association. And the idea is that when professional organizations, the evidence-based medicine, it developed because people like Bill Silverman were convinced some of the things that doctors were doing were hurting patients. They wanted to eliminate that. Evidence-based behavioral medicine is concerned about getting reimbursement and support for disseminating treatments. Rarely do psychological groups like APA or um, Society of Behavioral Medicine find treatments ineffective. Instead, they uh, make blanket recommendations. These treatments work. And they're often based on studies entirely done by the uh, developers of treatments. And so I went to battle, my colleagues and I went to battle with the American Heart Association. They had recommended that all patients be screened for depression as a way of reducing the possibility of another heart attack. We showed there was no evidence um, that that, uh, that, that ha would have that effect. And we, we published a paper in JAMA. It was a paper that British um, BMJ said it was one of the most influential papers of 2008, and we invited to um, uh, like a Academy Awards type thing. I knew the Brits always win those. I wasn't about to rent a tuxedo and fly to London. And so we didn't win, but we were certainly a finalist uh, because we had rather carefully documented that there's no evidence um, that it will improve survival for heart attack patients. So they started attacking us. I'd go to conferences, and they'd have a psychiatrist in the audience who would have something to read try to kind of say, and they're fun because they're often ill-prepared and just weren't research-oriented. This made things more lively. And so then we, they finally, the American Academy of Cardiology invited us to, um, to do basically a traction of the process by which the guidelines had been developed. And then we followed it up with another paper uh, with the American Heart Journal. Um, HJA is a, a respected journal, and we suggested there are very clearly defined rules by which professional groups should develop guidelines, they're really been feel, uh, fall, particularly in recommendations for screening for depression, depression and distress. Um, <coughs> jump ahead a little bit, but if you've watched my blogs, I just give a lot of attention to the terrible meta-analyses that are done by professional organizations. They pay to have them done, and they always come to the conclusion, uh, treatments in this area for pain, for depression, whatever, for fatigue, are reliable, reliably effective and suitable for dissemination. And that, but they're basically saying reimburse our members, um, uh, hire more of them to deliver these treatments. And it's a prearranged conclusion. Um, let's see. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do is um, reduce the power of pre publication review. We feel it's inherently flawed and we want to get all papers published and then decide afterwards and democratically decide the value of papers. And so I'm involved with PLOS. Um, I'm an activist for PLOS One. I don't get paid uh, for working on the journal. But the, we want all papers published. Last year we published 24,000 papers. We had an impact factor two years ago of 4.7. 
that upset us because that we felt that was being too selective. And that meant we were probably avoiding papers that say uh, generalization to sub-Saharan Africa or something like that that don't get a lot of citations. So we deliberately uh, accepted more broadly and we dropped our uh, impact factor to 3.4, which we're more comfortable with. Um, uh, <clears throat> so the, my tools, though, are used journals, blogs, and Twitter. Um, here's one. I lost a, a single malt bottle of scotch uh, because I had bet some people that I could get this horrible meta-analysis out of the uh, retracted from the British Journal of Psychiatry. Basically, um, Patricia Coleman, a right-wing uh, Catholic uh, anti-abortion activist, felt that they'd gone as far in the United States in outlawing abortion, and now they had to scare women away from it. She published a meta-analysis in the British Journal of uh, Psychiatry that claimed that 24% of the suicides in women of childbearing age were due to ha them having abortion. And she said that abortion led to drug abuse. Her evidence for that were studies only that she had, uh, had conducted, and um, drug abuse was smoking marijuana, which was measured before the women had an abortion. So there's some kind of reverse causality going on. Why did this get into um, um, the editor at the time, Peter Tyler, was a devout Catholic, and his editor, um, Patricia, um, come to me her name, um, uh, uh, an Irish Catholic, who had argued in print, a psychiatrist, that um, divorce had a, a more devastating effect on children than their parents getting murdered or dying in a car accident and should be banned in the interest of child welfare. And so um, we, I launched a campaign on my blog, and uh, it caught on, and there was an international letter-writing campaign. Ben Goldacre, the psychiatrist that I mentioned earlier and who wrote Bad Pharma, he was hired as, um, to resolve disputes by the journal, and then he ended up writing a, a caustic letter agreeing with us, but the editor still refused to retract it, so I had to buy someone a nice single malt scotch. Um, here's an article that right now I'm battling with cancer. A, uh, uh, Barbara Anderson claimed that her breathing exercises and dietary coaching increase the survival of early breast cancer patients. Early breast cancer patients are likely to die of something besides breast cancer. Their, their, uh, their um, uh, five year and 10 year survival is so good right now. If you were trying to show that a chemotherapy, a uh, new chemotherapy agent improved over routine care, you'd probably need about, as I estimated in my article, six to 8,000 patients. She had 36 in her, her study. And, and she did some uh, dodgy things with the statistics. I wrote to cancer, and I, I detailed the critique, and I wrote it with co-authored with the vice president of the American Cancer Society for Research, Michael Stefanik, and cancer wrote back, said, we won't publish your critique because Barbara Anderson refuses to respond, and it would be unfair to criticize an author without giving her a chance to respond. And so I argued, you gave her a chance, and we are going to attack you on the internet. So they published it, and now we, they, they published our critique without her commentary, and we said, okay, now we have a situation 
where the American Cancer Society recommends against women going to group therapy to extend their survival, but your journal has, has a, a paper saying that they should, and so um, we're going to go to COFE unless you do two things. You either retract the paper or you make the, public, the, the data publicly available for reanalysis. And so it's, it's, um, they've, they've so far refused the, um, the retraction, but we've contacted Ohio University, who owns the data, and said to them, if you don't release the data to the public, we're going to write to Congress. And we know that couple, what happened a couple months ago and how it was so painful for your um, vice president of research that you didn't give the data when Congress asked for it. So I'm going to take a couple weeks to consider what you're going to do next. Um, speak, this is the paper that got me involved. This is a paper that's been cited a thousand times, more than a thousand now. And these are the survival curves. Um, the, uh, the higher curve is uh, women who went to, uh, their more metastatic breast cancer, who went to group therapy. Um, and the lower curve is those that were in the intervention group. And um, what's interesting about the curve is there's been lots of efforts to replicate the study. Almost all the studies, both the experimental and the control group, approximate the um, experimental group in this study. So basically, we have an L uh, trial going on. The deviant group is the, the lower group, the control group. And um, we did a study in which we looked at how comparable that group was to the larger population in California from which they were drawn. It was statistically improbable that, that control group came from the population of metastatic cancer patients. Furthermore, you see that they actually were doing better until about um, 24 months out, four of them died. Um, before and after that sudden death of four of them, the, the two treatments are indistinguishable. So something weird happened. It fits no curve that's ever been shown in a metastatic uh, survival uh, curve. So something strange went on there. Even Spiegel can't uh, replicate it. But when I pointed this out in print, he wrote to my president twice in my university and said I was demoralizing breast cancer patients. Um, and here you see the battle that going on about um, uh, whether psychotherapy can extend the lives. And for me, it's, it's something I get passionate about because I think that cancer patients face difficult decisions. They face painful and disfiguring treatments. And I don't think that we should give them the illusion doing breathing exercises in a group is an alternative that gives false hope rather than giving them an opportunity to come to terms with their predicament. Um, here's a series of blogs I did. Um, what happened was um, a Scottish physician named Philip Wilson did a review of triple P studies and he showed that most of them were underpowered and conducted by um, either um, uh, Matt or someone, Matt Saunders or someone associated with him. If you put those aside, there was little evidence of the efficacy of triple P. He submitted to a journal called Clinical Psychology Review. Immediately he got a set of papers from Australia uh, that contradicted uh, what he said, and his supervisor was contacted, suggested he was threatening the collaboration with the Australians and should be terminated if they want to keep their study going. So he, uh, he didn't publish it there. He published it instead in a journal called um, uh, B, uh, BMC Medicine. And so it actually has higher impact. 
And so I blogged about it and said that he was too kind, that if he looked at some of the other flaws in studies, the, the conclusion was even de more devastating. BMC Medicine said, we'd rather have you debating the quality of our papers in our journal, would you like to publish your blog in the journal? And I said, no, you're, you have a publication fee, sorry. And they said, well, we'll suspend that, please come. So uh, we published it. So Matt Saunders sent a paper around, sent, uh, put it available on the internet, claiming that it was under review at the Society for Child, uh, Child, Society for Child Development, uh, something like that, Child Development Research, yeah. And that's unethical to circulate a paper saying it's under review. And there are clear rules. Why are there rules? Because the drug companies used to submit a paper to JAMA and they knew it would get rejected, but they'd go to a conference and distribute the paper being under review and claim the efficacy of their drugs. So the paper got summarily review, uh, removed from review. It got immediately published at Clinical Psychology Review, the paper that had, um, uh, had refused um, Phil Wilson's paper. And so we went on the attack. First, that um, they had abused um, uh, an author of a paper, and secondly, they published a terribly flawed paper, obviously without enough time for having even reviewed it. And uh, so now the, the status of the battle is the Clinical Psychology Review concedes that they published no conflict of interest statement, they concede no problems with the paper, and we've, we've suggested we're going to have informational pickets at Elsevier Publishing Company, which takes pride in the, uh, their protection of authors and their dealing with conflict of interest. Uh, clinical Psychology Review is published by them. We collected a lot of erratums, though, um, journals that published uh, um, triple P parenting studies and don't have a conflict of interest. Millions of dollars are being made by the faculty um, at uh, Matt Saunders University. It goes in their pocket. They have a, we actually obtained the agreements that the university has with the faculty, and they never disclose these things in print. So here's the study of the, um, uh, <coughs> the that was in Panis, Barbara Fredrickson. We did the reanalysis. Caused a lot of fuss on the uh, on the web, and I was contacted by someone, and they said, "This is the way we assemble these teams. We often don't know who they are." The person said, "I'm disproving Darwin, and I'm mapping the genome of all the electric organs and fish in the world, and I'd like to work with you." And I wrote to my friends who I was working with. I said, "Is this guy in an inpatient unit in psychiatry somewhere? And be careful." And they said, "No, find out about him." So we started a dialogue, and he said, I've got an embargoed paper I can't show you. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then it, he circulated it, come out. And the guy had actually showed that electric organs um, in fish, no matter where they were found in the world, had a common genetic structure. Why was that embarrassing to Darwin? Because Darwin said that, um, um, that the development of electric organs was a response to particular environments. It was adaptation. If this kind of data could be produced, it would show that it was more intrinsic to the to the fish, not to the uh, to the uh, fit with the environment. And so this guy actually did that, and he said, and and he got upset with us because we were suggesting he was crazy, and and so he said, how do you know that I'm not a computer? And we wrote back, that's all we need right now. We can do the analyses, but can we check them? And so we did, and then last week the paper came out in Panis, and it's, it's causing quite a fuss because it's clear this rubbish um, for the claim that uh, uh, pursuing meaning 
versus pleasure uh, improves the uh, genomic expression. Uh, random numbers uh, put into their equations work very well in showing the same thing. So it may be that I don't know whether pursuing meaning uh, versus pleasure is good for you. That's what philosophers say. But Barbara Fredrickson does not, as she said in a talk in Amsterdam, have objective evidence, um, for, uh, scientific evidence for what classic moral, moral philosophy teaches us. Okay, on-field editorial practices. Uh, papers are published in peer-reviewed journals that are only peer uh, not peer-reviewed. Um, um, Coke requires that you acknowledge as an editor that you allow a paper in without peer reviewing. There are reasons to do so. If it's a invite, if it's a, say an invited address, and you want to say we don't didn't ask the author to change anything, um, then you have to you have to say it. so it's not treated as another paper by a reviewer. Or if it's a committee report, if Society of Behavioral Medicine says that interventions are effective um, for uh, fatigue, and they say don't change our conclusion, okay, but noted, but it's not noted. Um, um, we're trying to eliminate authors' control of whether critical letters uh, to the editor are published. It's, I think it's really ridiculous that they can veto. Uh, this is a, um, when the um, Linda Carlson, actually was, actually was an Aussie who had written a paper showing that screening for distress didn't improve outcomes. And so she wrote a paper that cited, she had 10 citations in there that trashed the paper. The authors didn't know it was coming. They were excited about the journal coming out as a high impact journal they had published there, and then they reduced to looking ridiculous. And, um, and so I exposed that. Um, so then the, the reviewers probably, I, I strongly suspect one of the Canadian group, they blocked my publication of invited address because it, it said that it was insulting to the, um, the people who were trying, they didn't, didn't quote the data, but it was insulting to the people who were promoting screening. So uh, the journal asked me to respond to that, and I told them to hold the um, article hostage and to write me an email saying that he contacted their uh, uh, the reviewer and said, suggested he's a rogue reviewer. Um, conflicts of interest, then uh, authors don't, psychology journals don't require them. They require them, but don't enforce it. And um, here's a, a neural science site, fMRI study, of whether a therapy, emotionally focused therapy for couples, whether it increases the soothing ability of the husband on the wife. And it's rubbish. And it also was um, immediately turned into a promotional video with soft music and lights promoting this therapy in workshops. And um, so it was in my own journal close, so I made a formal complaint, and this, um, this here statement was put in errata. And we're going around collecting those, and for a lot of therapies. So I get criticized by my chairman, Carnegie, among other people, he says, the University of Koenigan does not offer a department of complaints. Here you are complaining about everybody in the literature, and you've got to say something positive. And, uh, and I, I don't buy that, but because I think it takes a lot of work. We had to do you know, eight to 10,000, I forget how many uh, analyses, to refute the Panis paper, Barbara Fredrickson and Stephen Cole. And that takes a lot of work, and I don't think we need to do the additional work. The pottery bond effect applies to journals who publish bad science, 
lots of people pointed out. So if you see on the shelf, that's a cracked bowl, they can't say, aha, you bought it. You, you bought the need to explain what we should have there instead. No, um, but I do think that we reached a certain threshold in our efforts that we're getting attention, and so more and more, uh, I'm trying to uh, get involved in efforts to reform the literature. How many people know about PubMed Commons? Few. Okay, here's the deal. The journals used to own abstracts. They copyrighted them, and they didn't allow you to reproduce them. And, and what you had to do to find something in the literature, you'd have to go to Medline, and you had to go to a university and have a university account, because the journals required that Medline accept a fee, and you either had to pay the fee or your library did. And so consequently, people couldn't find what was in the literature. So a, a group of conspirators at the National Library of Medicine, uh, not, they, the rumors were that they were planning to seize the abstracts and make them publicly available. The, the Elsevier and Wiley sent in their lawyers to Washington, and they panicked. So they got Al Gore involved. He was vice president at the time. He got on TV and announced that his wife had uh, cancer. He was very concerned about her, but fortunately he was able to find medical information because the U.S. government had taken over all abstracts was making them freely available. He typed in on a computer and learned about his wife's cancer. And so that was the first wave, uh, that was a few years ago, when PubMed replaced Medline. The next wave was, was scheduled to last October, but the American government shut down because of budgetary problems, so we had to delay. So we waited a few weeks, but what we did is we launched PubMed Commons. Anyone who has ever published one of the 23 million articles in PubMed can register with the um, PubMed and comment on any articles that have ever been published. So when someone goes to literature looking for, for a particular study, they'll, they'll get a statement. This has been commented on, and your, your statement can be found. I strongly recommend to graduate students that they get involved in this, and all they need is a, is a publication in their lab. It used to be, when I was trying to teach critical thinking, I used to tell people to um, write letters to the editor, uh, because that was more effective than journal club, you just critique papers. I don't believe that anybody reads letters to the editor, they often don't get published, but I think composing six to eight hundred critiques is an important way of, of students learning critical skills. And so we're involved. Now the next stage of the rollout of PubMed Commons is it'll be citable in ISI that you wrote a comment, and it'd be a read item. So the idea is to take the power away from pre-publication review and put it in the publication. Now, anybody can come in and argue with you, that's okay. And the idea is that, pub post, that publication peer review extends as long as the life of the article, as long as people want to talk about it, it keeps going. Um, so no longer a few people grant an irrevocable judgment of must stand because it's peer review that we're treating peer review with great suspicion. And then there's the efforts that I've been launching with psychotherapy research to suggest to people how we might salvage the literature. And I'm suggesting that we need a lot fewer randomized trials of psychotherapy, we need better trials. In the drug literature, before you do a randomized trial testing a drug, you do a phase two trial. where you find out, can it be tolerated? Will people take it? Do they get sick? Um, do they like it? And then and you get an estimate of how likely people will, will stay in a trial. And that's called a phase two trial. 
Instead, in psychotherapy literature, you decide, I'm developing mindfulness um, therapy with breathing exercises. I've got a new variation, and I'm going to run out and test it. And so you find out they got 14 patients in the, in the, in the intervention. Why did they get 14? Why not 15? Or why not 12? It's not they set the number of patients ahead of time to be that number. It's what all they could recruit. And so this, it's, uh, and often the, the investigators can cut the trial off as soon as they get a positive result. They monitor incoming data, stop the trial, it looks good for fear of they running more patients and look bad. We want to stop that. So there you have it. Um, occasionally get letters to my chairman. I, I, uh, I get rejected. I, there was a great deal of controversy in Rotterdam whether I should speak at the International Psycho-Oncology meeting uh, back in, uh, uh, I think it was February, and um, so they finally decided to give me a train ticket from Kroningen down, people point out I lived in, in, and that would be 60 euros, people point out that I lived in Philadelphia, that wouldn't pay for the transatlantic flight, and um, so they said I couldn't, I wouldn't be doing an invited address, and then the local organizing committee threatened to resign, and so I got to, to speak, and now um, two members of the organizing committee, um, um, Penny Schofield in, uh, in Melbourne, and uh, Wendy Lamb in Hong Kong have invited me to give the talk, as I wanted to do uh, for a longer time. So um, these are good taking hold. We're not making a lot of friends, but we're winning a lot of allies. And a lot of the papers that we write that end up in JAMA, BMJ, Panis, I've never met the authors, all of the authors before we publish. We pick them up on the on the internet, sort of like Max.com dating. You've got to be careful; you don't know what kind of monster is going to show up. But uh, and then Deb invited me um, based on Facebook, and she invited me to give a talk to your group because I was going to be in Australia anyway. And someone pointed out to her, "How do you know he's not a creepy murder, ex-murdering pervert? Because you only know him from the internet. It's always a risk." Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.